Hey, welcome everyone. This is Table Talk, your healthy theological radio addiction. I'm Brent Kuhlman. I'm here with Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Greetings, gentlemen. Good to be with you. Good morning. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Good, good Advent, good Christmas tide, good whenever you're listening to this, and uh, blessings in Christ. You guys been doing any Advent living? I mean, have you been repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus? I've been running around in a camel hair outfit (laughs) and... uh, Repent, you brood of vipers, shouting it from every corner of the mall, and uh, <laughs> it hasn't smokes. won me a lot of friends. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is so uh, we had the, uh, well, again, I'm the three-year series guy, and you guys are the one-year series, but in the three-year series we had the, recently we had the Holy Gospels, Luke 3, and uh, the parallels in, in Matthew and Mark. It's interesting that, uh, well, I, I'd say it'd be really shocking to hear John's preaching because... You know, he preaches repentance, and he's uh, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it's not to Gentiles, because you think about it, in John's context, it was the Gentiles. When they would convert to Judaism, they were the ones that were supposed to do all the repenting and then receive a baptism to show that they have uh, converted. And it's John who comes and preaches to Hebrews, children of Israel, and he tells them to repent and, and to receive a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So that's why I asked you, you know, uh, we Lutherans are just like John the Baptist. It isn't just the Methodists down the street and the Roman Catholics down the street who need to repent. It's the Lutherans who need to repent. How shocking that is. So Advent living, repent of your sins. You confess them. Tell the truth that you're truly a sinner and you deserve God's temporal and eternal punishment. And then believe in Jesus all the more for forgiveness. And then uh, with the prompting of the Holy Spirit and according to God's word, You'll lead a holy life. And that takes us into what we teased everybody with last week when we were talking about the third commandment. You know, we live in a, we live in a country. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, by the way, third commandment. <laughs> we, we have to touch something before we do that. Uh, Clint, you, you mentioned to me privately that, uh, oh, Brent, don't forget that we have Christians in America that number the commandments differently than Lutherans, right? Yes, we do. And sometimes people really take umbrage with that, don't they? Yes, they do. Well, real quickly, tell us, who numbers them differently than the Lutherans and why? Real quickly. And then, Adam, you jump in whenever. Okay. There there are basically three different numbering systems for the the order of the Ten Commandments. The Lutherans and Roman Catholics number the commandments one way, and that's the way that we've been studying them that's the way that we've been exposing them the third commandment then is remember the sabbath day by keeping it holy the uh that's the order in the roman catholic catechism that's the order in luther's small catechism that's the western tradition is that is the western tradition yeah uh the uh non the christians who are non-lutherans and non-roman catholics so basically everybody else the reformed the evangelicals the Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterians, Bible church people, all these folks have a different system of ordering, and they have a different second commandment. The second commandment in uh, this way of ordering is uh, thou shalt not have any graven images. And then when it comes to the ninth and tenth commandments, rather than having two commandments on coveting, the tenth commandment for them is thou shalt not covet. Right. And so that's how that's how that numbering system happens. And then there's a third system 
for uh, numbering the commandments. And uh, this is how the Jewish believers number the commandments. The Jewish believers only have one commandment for uh, coveting, thou shalt not covet. The Jewish believers do not have the second commandment as the Reformed do. Uh, So thou shalt not worship any graven images is not a commandment. But what they do is their first commandment is really a word. It is not a commandment. It is not a word of law. And uh, from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, I, the Lord your God, have delivered you out of bondage, out of captivity. Therefore, that's their first word. That's their first commandment. So it's a word of gospel, a word of deliverance, a word of grace. Now, just to clarify for people who are listening, when you say Jewish believers, you're talking about Jews who've been converted to Christianity? No, 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 no. You're just I'm, talking about Jews who remain Jews. I'm talking about Jews. Gotcha. I'm talking about Jews. Just so there's no confusion. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry no for worries. that confusion. No worries. Yes. I, I'm confused easily, as everyone knows. No, I'm glad you made that, I'm glad you made that clarification. Thank you. All right. Now, Adam, uh, why would the Reformed or Protestants in America be so hepped up, if you will, about no graven images and then numbering the commandments the way they do. Well, you know, they have a a great desire just to uh, not be Catholic, I think. And, you know, the Catholics have that. uh, They have uh, Jesus on the cross, the crucifix. They have windows uh, that uh, depict so many things. Statues. Right, statues of Mary, statues of uh, saints, uh, all sorts of things. They have that desire not to look Catholic, and what a great way to not be Catholic is to have that uh, commandment that says don't make any graven images, don't make any uh, pictures of Bible scenes, things like that. And I think that's a a large part of it is that desire to be separated from the Catholics. you know, I think the, uh, the the truth is is that, you know, God just doesn't want us to worship these pictures or these images. It has nothing to do with having them uh, or uh, learning from them or using them as examples. That's that's what I would say. Yeah, this goes back to the Reformation. You know, L- Luther had to deal with this. They were called the iconoclasts. Yes. And you had guys like uh, Karlstadt and his followers that they started just destroying the church buildings they they destroyed all the statues all the stained glass even the organs they they tore out because they said you can't have graven images what they failed to understand the context the original context of this commandment is the israelites were going into the land of canaan in which there were graven images and so if you'd go to a canaanite temple or a canaanite worship center if you will and you ask them, where is your God, they would point to an idol. And the idol, essentially, for the pagan, the Canaanite, was the means of grace. That's how, that's what, to use our language, right. okay? So this is why God says, no, no, no graven images, because I don't work that way. I don't, I, I don't give you the means of grace through a, through a graven image, if you will. But rather, we, and the surprising thing is when you'd go to the, <laughs> the tabernacle and then later the temple, and, and if you were asked, well, where's your God? If you were a Canaanite and asked a Hebrew, where's your God? They'd point to the cherubim facing each other above the uh, mercy seat, and they'd be empty. <laughs> and the Canaanite would say, what? That's stupid. But God says, no graven images because my presence is there with my name, and it's there, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. That's the means of grace. That's where I'm God for you. They forget this context. I think that's an important thing to understand when we uh, think about the commandments is, is that 
the Jews wouldn't make a picture of their God, but they still had the cherubim in the tabernacle and in the temple later. They still had images woven into the fabric that was the uh, temple curtain. Uh, And so it's not any image that you can't have. It's just don't make a picture of who your God is. And I think that that's also preparing us to... Uh, understand who the true God is. Uh, It's not a thing of wood or stone or metal, but rather it's Jesus and that he's the image of God that comes that we ought to look to and worship. There's another issue here, just just to piggyback on this, and it's not to deny what we've talked about. It's just piggybacking on what we're talking about. There is something deeply wrong with the iconoclast, and it is Gnosticism. And that is to say, if you don't know what Gnosticism is, folks, just Google it. Uh, Gnosticism treats anything physical or creaturely as evil. And so that's what's really lurking here. Seriously. And it's all well-intended and all well-meaning. You know, we're going to try not to break the commandment. You shall have no graven images. And, and what happens is, is you deny that God actually can use creaturely things and creatures to communicate the gospel or the law or any teaching of the scriptures, you see. That's the bottom line danger in all of this. And, and, I, and I want to take the, the two things that you said, the anti-Roman Catholic fervor and the Gnostic uh, theology or philosophy that is out there and pull them back together because I've had some practical experience with people from a Reformed evangelical background that... Uh, uh, came to the Lutheran Church, loved the Lutheran Church, and were ready to join the Lutheran Church. And the stumbling block, believe it or not, was the numbering of the commandments. They had been taught in their Reformed-slash-Evangelical Church. They had been taught that the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics are part of a great conspiracy with regard to the numbering of the commandments. And the conspiracy is to remove the second commandment regarding graven images Mm -hmm. and that they know, the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics know, that sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are really graven images. Yes, yes. And so we are part of a grand conspiracy to get rid of that commandment and so that we can flaunt our graven images of the sacraments and it's so it is an anti-sacramental understanding it's gnosticism again. it is it is a gnostic way of looking at things and i think some people simply because the roman catholics do it it's automatically wrong yeah and they're not being very discerning there. that's a very surface level understanding very yeah. very surface level understanding and uh at the same time fail to see that through luther's meaning of the first commandment we should fear love and trust in god above all things and also the close of the commandments that we have not removed the uh, prohibition against graven images we have just properly understood it in its context with regard to the first commandment right let me push this further um i hope this is edifying for folks because i i This really hardly ever gets talked about. So uh, let's continue, shall we? And it's this. Let's let's see how this works. So let's say you're a follower of Karlstadt, an iconoclast, who says no graven images. So you have to to gut the entire church of everything that is essentially physical or creaturely. And you know where this eventually ends up? Watch how this works. You have a guy by the name of Munster, another radical iconoclast. And it goes this far, that the very Bible itself 
can't be used. Seriously, this is no joke and it's no overstatement. Munster, or Munster, he, who led the peasants in revolt and, of course, yeah. and then was killed. But he even said, and I'm going to paraphrase, you can look this up on Google, folks, the history of this guy. He would say that the Bible doesn't communicate God's word to us. Where you have to go for God's word is guess where? Inside yourself. That's where the spirit works. What you feel and what you think, that's where God's really at work and talking. Not an external, physical word, namely a Bible, or not even an external preacher. <laughs> it's, all, it's all inward. And so Christianity becomes so Gnostic for, for a Munster is that you don't need church, you don't need a pastor, you don't need water with the word, you don't need bread and wine with the word. All you need is yourself. And brothers and sisters, this is where Christianity in the West goes off the rails, off the rails. And you've got to watch this and diagnose this anytime you have somebody who's doing the graven image stuff we're talking about you have to diagnose is this where this is leading if so you need to flee from this it always ends up with asking jesus into your heart uh, the jesus in the heart is more and, important and you than don't the even jesus need on the you cross. don't even need seriously you in this paradigm you don't even need god who takes on flesh for salvation it's totally inward looking in yourself to find God. You don't even need Jesus at Bethlehem. You don't even need Jesus on the cross. Seriously, this is no joke, and I'm not exaggerating. If, if people are, are interested in this, um, uh, ben, uh, Bente's, uh, is it Theodore Bente? Theodore Bente's historical introduction to the Book of Concord. It is online free. Yeah, that's it's right. It's in the public domain. And you will see that this was an issue with regard to uh, several of the uh, uh, articles in the Formula of Concord. Right. And it is still with us today. That's right. Well, we hear the music, so we've got to take a break. So hang on tight, folks, and we'll get back to the third commandment. Healthy Radio Addiction. I'm here with Clint Poppy and Adam Aline, and I'm Brent Kuhlman. Uh, Clint, I, before we continue with Third Commandment, we might not get back to it today, but that's okay. But, you know, did God number the commandments? Uh, yes and no. Yes and no. And that's not a trick question. Uh, God's Word tells us that he has given us ten words, ten commandments. That, that word in the Hebrew, if I remember right, debar, yep. devar, devar, debar. Mm-hmm. And uh, it means word, statement, thing, commandment. It can, it, it's a ver- very uh, common, almost a generic word. But he tells us there's 10 of them, but nowhere in the sacred scriptures does he number them. So that's, that's a matter of freedom number. It is a matter of Christian freedom. And uh, as I've said many times before, too many times... Christians want to argue, they want to fight, they want to get down and dirty, not about clear teachings in Scripture that we have differences of opinion on, but these matters of freedom, what we would call adiaphora, and uh, this is uh, 
I suppose this is the way the old Adam and the old Eve that lives and dwells inside of us. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we we do it for a reason. We follow the Western tradition, and it's it's very pedagogical because one through three in the way we've got it talks about our relationship to God. But at the same time, we've set into context the graven images in our last segment. But I want to come back to Adam. Adam, so uh, you probably no doubt have a crucifix in your study. Um, I think here at uh, Good Shepherd, you guys have all kinds of artwork and things up by the altar, uh, etc. I know at Trinity Murdoch, we have a large crucifix above the altar. I mean, you want to talk about large, it's, it's like six to eight feet. And uh, we have statues of angels adoring the crucified Christ. So what's wrong with that? Or let me let me say, what's good about that? <laughs> yeah, they're, actually, they're a great thing for us to have because they help us to learn the faith. Um, there's people that are very visual in the way that they learn. And so if you have a painting of the baptism of Jesus, for example, with the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, the hand of God uh, ripping open the heavens and, and Christ in the water, that does a great benefit to helping someone visualize and understand baptism and also the Holy Scriptures. Or uh, when you go into the Church of the Holy sepulcher in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, They have a giant mural across there. On one side, it has uh, the empty tomb. On one side, it has a picture of Jesus' crucifixion, and it helps the people to understand where they are and what took place there and uh, teaches the faith. And I think that's the benefit of having images. Uh, They help teach the faith, maybe even to those in the ancient uh, world and even in the time of Luther who couldn't read or write. Um, And so if they could see a picture, that's something they can understand that teaches them what we believe and why. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Now, I'm going to really push this even further. Just, just have fun with this, okay? F- folks, all I can say is he has this look on his face. <laughs> That's right. He's got this twinkle in his eye. His forehead's getting pinker and darker pink and darker pink, and soon it'll be red. Uh, and uh, so I don't know what's coming, but well, uh, let's have it. All right. Have you guys, have you guys ever heard of a, a scholar who teaches in uh, St. Andrews in Scotland by the name of Bridget Heal? Bridget Heal. Ever heard of her? No. Oh, no. you should you should get to know her, and and you should you should read her book. No, certainly not in a biblical way. No, no, of course not. Uh, get your mind out of the gutter, uh, Clint. Uh, 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 she has written a book entitled "A Magnificent Faith: Art and Identity in Lutheran Germany." So I I would encourage the pastors who listen to this show and even lay people get this book asap. Again. Heal is spelled H-E-A-L, and her first name is Bridget. She teaches in Scotland's St. Andrew University. Is this a, a fairly new book yeah. or an ancient book? It's, it's, it's new. Okay. It's, it's 2017, if I remember correctly. Okay. And she's, uh, she's an excellent uh, speaker of German, reader of German, and a, uh, a scholar of the Reformation, okay? especially um, uh, the Second Reformation, if you will. Okay. And she, in this book, she demonstrates uh, how the massive push by a dozen or so German princes in the second half of the 16th century to force their territories out of the Lutheran Reformation and into Reformed Christendom caused those who remained faithful to the Lutheran Confession to cherish all the more specific liturgical rites, customs, architecture, and art as markers and indicators of the Lutheran faith. 
And you can begin to understand where that might go, like with the Lord's Supper. Because one of the big things about the difference between the Lutherans and the Reformed was, all right, when you come to communion, do you actually receive with your mouth the bread and the body of Christ and with your mouth the wine and the blood of Christ? And we're not talking about symbolic body, symbolic blood, but the real crucified, risen, and ascended body and blood of Christ. Well, of course, the Reformers said no. The Lutherans said yes. And this had tremendous impact on liturgical rites, customs, art, and architecture. And since we're talking about images, it comes to mind is um, the image of Jesus on the cross with the uh, wound in his side and the blood pouring out into a chalice held by an angel and the water uh pouring out into a baptismal font, teaching us that when we are in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, we're really receiving Jesus directly. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a very Lutheran picture, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, just uh, I'll come back to this book here in a minute. But again, back to Trinity Murdoch, where I serve. Um, the hermeneutic of the eye, let's call it that way. There's a hermeneutic of the eye. <laughs> when, when people come to church at Trinity Murdoch, you cannot help but see the huge crucifix of Christ above the altar. And you cannot help but see the, the statues of the angels uh, adoring the crucified Christ. It, it tells you immediately that this is a Christian church. It tells you that God took on flesh and what it took to pay for the sins of the entire world and yours in particular. And so we worship this God who died on the cross the second person of the Trinity. This is what he did for you and for your salvation. And this is what worship is all about. It is we believe in this God who did this for you, for your salvation. And as the hymn teaches us, God himself is present. present. This is not in a... Let us now adore him. Yeah, this is not in a mystical way. This yeah. is not in a Gnostic way. If I may, uh, several years ago when my uh, oldest grandson was in preschool... One day, he asked Grandpa Poppy a uh, question that was uh, theologically profound. He says, Grandpa, how come Jesus is in Grandpa Hansen's church, but Jesus (laughs) is not in our church? Well, I didn't understand, and Grandpa Hansen is Roman Catholic, very, very faithful, pious Roman Catholic uh, gentleman and a good man, uh, with the exception he likes country music. That's a whole other topic. But um, um, the uh, I, I didn't understand the question, and I didn't understand the context. Well, recently, uh, prior to that question, Derek had accompanied Grandpa Hansen to the church. They did some charity work there, and he was in the sanctuary. Several months later, I had a funeral. The uh, mother of one of our members was buried out of that particular Roman Catholic church here in town. And when I stepped into the church, I knew exactly what little Derek was talking about. Because when you stepped in, there is this giant crucifix, six, eight, ten feet tall, hanging above the altar. When you walk into that church... That crucifix tells you Jesus is present here. Even a four-year-old child 
was able to pick that up, and he wanted to know why Jesus wasn't present in our church. Right now, and I Go didn't ahead. have the heart to tell him that we have such pietistic anti-Roman Catholic folks in our congregation, or at least a few of them, that they didn't want a crucifix because they didn't want to appear too Roman Catholic. Yeah. This is many years ago, and you will see now that we have uh, a crucifix on the altar here at Good Shepherd. Thanks be to God, great teaching tool. And we also have a uh, processional cross that is very icon like, you know, we don't pray to it or worship it, but the style see, is and what a you, teaching tool. And what you just said, you don't pray to it and you don't worship it. You see, that's, that's the accusation that is made against Roman Catholics and Lutherans who have statuary, mm-hmm. crucifixes, etc., artwork, stained glass windows, etc., is that you people worship these things. And so the distinction we're making is, no, we don't. However, the artwork, the statuary, the crucifixes, etc., tell us, as the hymn you quoted earlier, God himself is present in his word. And so as when Jesus said in Matthew 28, Lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is why Lutheran, Lutherans, when they built churches in Germany and when they emigrated to the United States, and not just Lutherans, but Scandinavian Lutherans, etc., when they came to the United States and they built churches like in rural Murdoch, Nebraska, and rural Louisville, Nebraska, that's where near where I serve, so I'll just give these examples. When they built the altar, it was a high altar. High altar, orna- ornate, white with gold edging, etc., gold trim. And you would have a statue. Now, I'm going to speak about the two congregations I just mentioned, Trinity Murdoch, Emmanuel Louisville. They built high altars, and they had a statue of guess who on the high altar. Who do you think it was? Jesus. It was Jesus. And it wasn't just any Jesus. It was the ascending Jesus, as recorded in Scripture, with his arms outstretched, blessing Blessing, just like he does in the Ascension, as Luke records. Now, of course, I joke about this with people because we still have that statue of Jesus at Trinity Murdoch, but it's not on the altar anymore because they did renovations way before I got there. But just run with this. Uh, I joke about this because Jesus with his hands outstretched looks like pass interference Jesus compared to Notre Dame's touchdown Jesus. <laughs> That's side note. But the point is this, is our Lutheran fathers knew that artwork... We don't worship the art, but the artwork in the statue of the ascending Jesus on the altar gives a theological message, which is that when you come to church, you are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't leave us when he ascended, but rather now is more present with us now than he was with his apostles when he walked on the earth for three years with them. And, and the ascending Jesus is now blessing his church through his word that you're going to hear, in baptism that you receive, in the absolution that you receive, and in his body and blood that you receive at the sacrament when you come to this altar. See, this is what we're talking about. And see, when people say that you can't have these things and you break the so-called graven images, they miss the entire point. And also they miss the point of the ascension. I think that's, that's why that's so crucial that that artwork or those statues would depict the ascension. Because what is the common misunderstanding with regard to Jesus' ascension? Is that he left? He's gone. Yeah. He's really absent. He is not with us. But to see that ascending Christ who is really present with us in word and in sacrament, God himself is present. That's a great hymn. Here's the opposite. Artwork also can convey the wrong message. And here's an example of this. When I served at uh, Faith in Hebron, Nebraska, I, would, I, had, I had shut-ins that were in the Blue Valley nursing home. 
and I, I would do uh, services there as well. Um, there was a painting in the chapel, and maybe you've seen this in other places, and the painting was of a church. And you, you had the doors of the church were open, and you were looking from the outside into the church, through the nave to the altar. You had the congregation at worship, <clears throat> but what, what tells it all is where was Jesus in the painting? He wasn't inside. He was outside looking in. And that's the Reformed view of Jesus isn't there. He's outside looking in. And thus you can't have any graven. Make sense? Yep. Absolutely. In North Dakota where I served, we had all those same statues you were just talking about, sending Jesus. It's a very, very common thing across the entire Lutheran world. And we're trying to recover this, this hermeneutic of the eye. One cute little story, when I was going to uh, school at Concordia in Mequon, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the uh, Roman Catholic uh, monastery, nunnery, convent, convent, thank you, lost the word there, um, was being closed because they had a shortage of nuns. And so Concordia Mequon bought the facilities, but they didn't know what they were going to do with the giant stained glass window in the back of the church because it was a picture of the ascension of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Ah. And Lutherans don't believe in that because it is not... uh, Biblically accounted for yeah. us in the Bible. Right. And so they could not afford the hundreds of thousands of dollars to uh, replace that. So what did they do? They hired the director of art to paint a beard and mustache on Mary, <laughs> and it became the ascension of Jesus. No oh, joke. Oh, that's true. Great. Story. Well, with that, we've got to close. Now, in the meantime, when we come back, we're going to talk more about this book I mentioned. In the meantime, stay Lutheran, my friends.